0: This morning's text comes to us in a part of Mark uh, that is known as a a liminal space, that is a space in between two uh, important transitions. Uh, It's known as the transfiguration of Jesus and found in the ninth chapter of Mark. For us, it's also liminal in that today is Transfiguration Sunday, which stands between the last season of Epiphany that we have celebrated since Christmas and the six weeks of Lent that is before us starting with Ash Wednesday this coming week. This text uh, is important to us in many ways in that it gives us a picture of Jesus as both divine and human and how in each case these Personas of Jesus feed the other and are of ultimate importance for who he was and what his meaning is for us. So may we receive in the reading of this word a transmorgification in our lives, lifting this up as God's word to us. Six weeks later, that's later after the disciples and Jesus had been at Caesarea Philippi, when Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Messiah. And then Messiah then began to tell them that he must suffer and die. And Peter said, no, not you, Lord. And, and, And Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Six weeks after that first announcement of Jesus' suffering passion... Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, my beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead could mean. This is the word of the Lord. Thirty years ago, I was about fifty A movie came out that won a couple of Academy Awards that you might remember called Cocoon. It was a Ron Howard uh, movie about uh, some aliens from uh, Arteria who had come back to Earth after uh, being here 10,000 years before uh, and leaving 20 of their comrades in pods down in the middle of the deep ocean where the continent of Atlantis used to be. And they came back to retrieve their comrades, the 20 of them, uh, and they rented a boat uh, that was captained by Steve Gutenberg, and went out to retrieve these pods to put them in a swimming pool in a house that they had rented in St. Petersburg. Next to the house happened to be a retirement home uh, where it was discovered that this house had a pool and several of the gentlemen, this is a great cast by the way, Wilford Brimley and... Hugh Cronin, and um, Don Amici, uh, uh, Brian Dennehy, who happens to be the leader of the uh, uh, Aliens, and and women, uh, Jessica Tandy, uh, Maureen Stapleton. Um, Anyway, so these three guys uh, go swimming in this pool. But when the pods went into the pool, there was this incredible life force uh, that activated the waters, and so when the, these older guys would come out of the pool, they were so invigorated, uh, that they, they'd actually uh, gone back in time and, and retrieved some of their youth. Their arthritis was gone, a lot of their ailments were dissipating. Every time they swam, they got younger. It was indeed the fountain of youth. Word got out, uh, and so the, all the retirement center began to swim in the pool. It, it turns out that the life force from these pods was finite, And the more they swam in the pool and received this life force, the less life force was in the aliens in the pods. Eventually, there was no life force left. When they discovered that there were aliens from Arteria, they are Arteria, I guess you would say. Uh, I keep thinking about it in a biblical sense, but science fiction is Arteria. Uh, These aliens revealed themselves by pulling up the skin underneath their chin... Uh, their human face to reveal this incredibly bright, uh, brilliant light that diffused this very innocent, uh, sort of childlike alien face. But it was so bright, everyone flinched the brightness of it all. As I think about this story, I think that something like that must have been the case when Jesus was transfigured on the mountaintop. He took James and John and Peter with him up to that mountaintop. The three, by the way, that he also took into the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed to God to have this cup pass. As he's standing there, he is transfigured. The word is metamorphosis in Greek as a caterpillar is transfigured or metamorphized into a butterfly. Transmorgified, as Bill said. A great word. Uh, He's transfigured before him. He is gleaming white, as bright as you can imagine. And his clothes, he had one tunic, the text says. Think of how dirty it must have been as that one tunic. I'm sure it was earth-colored. Yet the text says his clothes were made dazzling white, as white as the white tornado in an Ajax commercial. That dates me too, by the way. That's how the text describes it. And the disciples are dismayed and they hit the ground because they are terrified. And Peter blurts out, because Peter often blurted out, Let's build three museums. He looked up and there was Moses and Elijah and Jesus. Moses, the giver of the law, Elijah, the first of all the prophets, and Jesus, the new covenant. Let's build three museums, one for Moses, one for Elijah, one for Jesus, and just stay up here for the rest of creation. And Jesus sort of looked at him as he normally did, with some sorrow in his eyes. And no sooner had Moses said that than the Moses, um, excuse me, that Peter had said that, than Moses and Elijah vanished, and this giant cloud came and rested on them, and a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Now at that point, while they could have stayed there, Jesus immediately took with him James and John and Peter and started heading back down the mountain into the valley of death. For this was the beginning of his journey to Jerusalem and the cross that inevitably waited for him. Peter did not yet understand That Jesus wasn't so much about mountaintop experiences as he was about the valley of the shadow of death. But they would learn. What is this dead thing you were talking about, Jesus? What do you mean when you die and are raised again? We just saw this divinity of you, uh, this incredible presence, this transcendent holy godness in you on the mountaintop. What do you mean dead? Dead? And I don't understand that. And this is exactly where the comparison between Cocoon and this story of Jesus' transfiguration ends. For in Cocoon, the aliens decide to take 20 of the older people from the retirement home with them in the spaceship back to Arteria, where they would live infinitely because they were immortal. They never aged. There was no suffering or illness. Yet in Jesus' case, instead of bringing his disciples up to the mountaintop where that might have been possible, Jesus and his disciples go back down into the valley of life where there is illness and suffering and in the end death. Complete opposite ending. No Hollywood ending at all for Jesus. God... So loved the world, John says, that he gave his only begotten son. And in meaning that, he said he made him human, like us, incarnate, enfleshed in this world, to live and suffer and die just like we do. Because God understood that that was the way for us to finally come to know how much God loves us. Jesus chose to be human To be like us so that we, it is said, can become like Jesus. He humbled himself taking the form of a servant, Paul says in Philippians, not counting equality with God, something to be grasped, but making of himself a servant. John Calvin uses the term condescended. Jesus condescended himself by becoming human I've always struggled with this passage, to be honest. There's Jesus on this mountaintop moment, uh, illuminated by this incredible divine light and presence and the voice of God coming near. And my problem with it is that it it just seems too supernatural, too superhero-like. Because we don't really see those events in our lives, do we? I mean, if Jesus could be illuminated like that then, why can't Jesus be illuminated like that now? I've had trouble with this because it seems to keep Jesus up on his divine perch. Underneath that human skin was this real power of divinity. Jesus was completely divine, just acting human. But that's not what the text says. In fact, we can't understand what Jesus' gift in humanity was unless we also understand who he was in his divinity. And that is he gave that up, as I said, to become like us. And the reason I've had trouble with this is because I keep searching for that giant burning bush illumination event where we are dazzled, even terrified by the power of God. And, And maybe in a way to hear God's voice that clearly and plainly To define who I am. Annie Dillard in her book Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. Says that she read about a doctor who in Europe was one of the early surgeons who performed cataract surgery. And when he removed the bandages from this uh, woman's eyes. She said all of a sudden she saw a tree with lights in it. Is how she described it. For Annie Dillard, this started her own journey of looking for a tree with lights in it. She wrote, It was for this tree I searched through the peach orchards of summer, in the forests of fall and down the winter and spring of years. Then one day I was walking along Tinker Creek thinking of nothing at all, and I saw the tree with the lights in it. I saw the backyard cedar where the morning doves roost, charged and transfigured, I stood on the grass with the lights in it, grass that was holy fire, utterly focused. It was less like seeing than being for the first time seen, knocked breathless by a powerful glance. The vision, she said, comes and goes, but I live for it. So here's a what if. What if, because we uh, have enculturated ourselves to see what we see and to perceive what we perceive and and do not actually see the total reality of life around us, physicists say that we only really get or know 5% of reality, what if, in fact, this incredible, brilliant, divine presence of God in Jesus Christ is made real in every single atom in the world? That this light is there. What if, in fact, if that's true, then every single creature and human being carries within him or her, her, herself, by virtue of being created in the image of God, that same incredible light of God. That when we pulled up our human face underneath, you would see this incredible shining presence of the divinity too. Some of us feed that divinity. We nurture it by the power of the winds of the Holy Spirit, it grows. And some of us try to douse it and put it out, drowning it in all the thousands of different ways that we try to drown everything else. Yet it's never fully out because it's the light of God. And if that's the case, then in, for each of us, we can shine through our skins, our bodies, our lives, our presence into the world as that same illuminated light of the divine presence of God that Jesus had on the mountaintop. What if? If I can take a personal moment, um, uh, this occurred to me through a man that uh, we are remembering this week, uh, Coach Dean Smith, who died. He was, for me, one of my models, exemplars, and heroes I knew about his uh, uh, being a member of Binkley Baptist Church in Chapel Hill. I knew that when he was an associate uh, uh, coach uh, 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 and not a full coach that his preacher, Robert Seymour, took him out to lunch and said, Dean, I challenge and charge you as a disciple of Jesus Christ to help integrate Chapel Hill as part of your job as a coach at North Carolina. And Dean took that seriously and took with him a young black theological student to the Pines restaurant where the owner of the Pines, knowing Dean, let them in. It was the first time that integration had happened in the city. And Dean did it as an assistant because if he had been a coach, no great risk. But as an assistant, he could have lost his job. As I read more about that, I discovered that Dean was doing that kind of stuff all the time. I got to know him a little bit. His, uh, his daughter was a, a member of my high school, Sharon. Uh, she's consequently married a good friend of mine named Tim Kepley. I heard story after story about how Dean